Most experts believe the virus will soon transition from pandemic to an endemic phase. Yeah, sounds like good news, but what does that really mean? I do think there's really a question of, is masking worth the downsides? Is it worth, I know you pointed this out when I've been on your show before, your glasses fog. Um, so I find this objection to like a normal life very odd by the media, but that is what creates the fear, is going to the New York Times website and looking at the number of cases. And at some point, that's just got to go. Welcome to the Death Panel. If you appreciate our work and you would like to help support the show, then become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. As a patron, you will also get access to our second weekly bonus episode, which comes out every Monday, a discount on merch and access to the entire back catalog of patron-only episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So March 11th, 2022, which is about a week ago, less than a week ago at the time of recording, marked the two-year anniversary of the World Health Organization's declaration of COVID-19 as a global pandemic. And as we've been talking about at great length in recent episodes, many of the things that we've come to associate with being in the pandemic are coming to an end, despite the fact that we are clearly still in a pandemic with cases at a pretty high level to be rolling back masking. And the impetus for these recent shifts is less to do with changing science or new information that informs the underlying health principles of our approach to mitigation these are largely sociological productions happening at the level of optics, vibes, broad <laughs> narratives, <laughs> and uh, having very little to do with the ongoing public health threat. And while we've talked at length about the fact that we've been living through the real-time making of a kind of end to the society-level emergency, it's been harder to grasp what that end actually looks like and, in effect, how COVID does actually not end. And since we are actively in this process of ending, it can be really hard for people to actually sort of step back and get a picture of what the end might look like. Unless, I guess, you're a management consultant and then it's specifically your job to spend time thinking and planning what the end will look like. So since the terms of this ending are being negotiated in real time, today we are going to take that step back and return to this broader, more conceptual topic of the end of the pandemic. Right. I think this is something, obviously, as we've talked about, this has been you know, a, a production in process for a very long time, arguably, even if you go back to, for instance, like not just our uh, episode COVID year two, but also to just really the, the kind of ongoing coverage that we've been doing. Like we've been talking about the sociological production of the end of the pandemic for, I mean, basically now at this point, I guess, like the majority of the pandemic like yeah because there was this raft of uh, commentary pretty much the moment that biden was inaugurated like as of january 20th 2021 suddenly there there was a big sea change as we've talked about in previous episodes among sort of the pundit class um talking about how like you know essentially we were kind of we're, we've always been kind of perpetually at the edge of the end and it's really getting this now seems i think like the sort of final sell 
in that moment. And it's clear, I think, that especially considering that I think uh, you'll notice even in like the next couple of weeks, I've started to notice there are a lot of even pieces out explicitly being like, how does the pandemic end? When will the pandemic end? <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that B was referencing earlier that we're going to talk about in a, in a minute, a little later here is even a document from the uh, ma- famed management consulting firm McKinsey um, that is literally called how does what is it called? When will the COVID-19 pandemic end? When will the COVID-19 pandemic end, um, which was out March 1st yeah. of this year uh, and has been a document actually that they've been that actually they started uh, publishing over a year ago and they've been kind of continually updating oh. since then. But I think the really important thing is, as we've been talking about what people now mean by this, it seems pretty clear that actually now what this ending means is that it doesn't. In fact, like it will not end. The the pressure, the move that is happening right now is ex- one of explicitly kind of actually pretty openly stating it will not end. Yeah, that's right. And and, and I think that this it's worth like making a few distinctions here because I think that one of the things that I've seen sort of around this discussion is the kind of pundit nihilism about these mm-hmm. things. You know, Matt, Matt Iglesias saying something to the effect of, well, I guess you guys wanted this paradise of uh, when an outbreak happens in uh, Hong Kong, the entire city gets locked down. And, uh, you know, uh, as opposed to what we have now, which is like life seemingly sort of like returning to normal, you know, I guess ignoring the you know, million deaths plus all the disease, you know, I, I, you know, one one could go on. But I think it's important to like make a few distinctions here, because I think what we're trying to conceptualize or talk about is really something that's like, to me, like my, my, um, uh, bullheaded, like political scientist in me is like, this is really people just trying to find a way of allowing the Biden administration to take a win, avoid a loss, like try to, you know, essentially claim some kind of uh, victory going into a a midterm uh, election where Democrats are going, it's going to be a bloodbath. Uh, for them. And I think that, you know, the thing that I imagined that the Democrats were moving towards uh, was something to the effect of, well, essentially, like we have the tools uh, that we, you know, need to to deal with, uh, you know, whatever waves will come next. And what we're really going to do now is like focus on the next wave and like doing a bunch of things to, or like or potentially future pandemics and like putting a bunch of sort of mild changes into place to deal with that. But now it seems that there's, there's not even like an appetite <laughs> for that. Right. Um, yeah. And that even that, that idea that, okay, uh, maybe uh, the, the sort of the centrist democratic path here is okay. We can't really do anything extensive on social policy. We don't have uh, sort of the votes or the support among our business, you know, the business constituency in our party uh, to do that. So we're going to take this sort of technocratic path, one that is actually consistent with what at least some things you, you see coming out of McKinsey uh, saying like, OK, we're going to make these changes like for the next pandemic. But now it's it's not only are uh, we done with this pandemic, we are done in a way with having to be on the hook for learning anything uh, about what wasn't in place or not. So, and, and and not just in the sense of learning anything so that we can make better preparations for a future viral uh, disease, but we're done actually learning about and, and, and sort of publicizing the state of the current 
pandemic. So like that is in a sense, I think it's a little bit different in a way than what we've seen before, which is just sort of the these sort of fringe ideas about what public health is, which is like the fringe idea being like it is whatever an economist says it is. Um, migrated to the mainstream via, you know, uh, popular media, people like Leonhardt um, and others. But now it's sort of like, OK, well, th- this is, is actually far more extreme, I think, than I, I even imagined. Right. And I think that's most indicative in this. Suffice it to say, we can't sort of ignore the immediate context that we're recording this into, which is that, for example, like. There's this big funding struggle over really like the future of there being any COVID-19 funding at all. Right. I mean, it's being portrayed actually really as this like battle over the new Biden plan, which if you like listen to our patron episode that we did with Justin and Abby, uh, Justin Feldman and Abby Cardis last Monday, when we reviewed the new Biden COVID plan, which, you know, is, I think, a big component of what we're talking about here, because like what they were selling with that COVID plan was selling the idea of the end of the pandemic. And what was actually contained in that plan, as we discussed in that conversation, is really just kind of a, an idea that like, we'll do more of the same. We're going to add a couple little things maybe here and there. But for the most part, it's going to be the same pandemic response that you kind of know and love. And Uh, Despite the fact that that's kind of the actual contents of the plan, it ended up being that it was, you know, sold as this like big expansive, you know, this is going to be their end of the pandemic. This is how we get to get to a point where we're just kind of living with COVID or whatever, or we're just kind of able to be, what is it? They use like the word agile, et cetera, (laughs) as all of these people do uh, love to be agile. And then, so, you know, it's, it's sold as this big new plan, this expansive new vision for the, the end of the pandemic or managing the pandemic. And in reality, you know, again, it's basically they're asking, it's their document asking for, can we please have some money so that we can continue actually giving people vaccines, for example. And now as a result, the fund, for instance, that reimburses doctors and, you know, other providers for basically treating uninsured patients um, and the fund that like basically is where, you know, if you go in and get the COVID vaccine uninsured, for example, that like pays for that, essentially, um, they're going to stop taking new claims next week yeah, and yep. fully wind down that program by April. And there's a lot of other stuff in there, too, right? Like, I, I mean, I, I posted about this on Twitter, but basically like th- there's for example, one of the promises made in the plan is like, we're going to use pending funding from Congress. We will roll out vaccines to under five, like to this people, is- to kids under five once, once they're approved. And it's like, so all of these aspects, as I think B was kind of alluding to, like all of these aspects that we've now come to sort of associate with the general pandemic response with like the idea of like there being not only with the idea of us being in a pandemic and the sort of visual signifiers that we think about that in terms of like masking and things like that, which have, you know, redounded now to personal responsibility. Now, in fact, also a lot of the things that were being done in general, just basically Democrats have decided, nope, we're like, we're done with that. We're not going to fund that anymore. And the worst part is it's not even just that. It's also the things that they've been proposing and promising for months as being the way that we keep the vulnerable protected, right? right? These are things that aren't even like fully comprehensively rolled out. Like the Paxlovid plan, the White House also announced that they need to already scale back the planned purchases that they 
they had committed to for preventative treatments like Paxlovid, which were specifically earmarked for immunocompromised people. They also said that they're going to have to end federal funding for monoclonal antibody therapy, which was previously provided for for free. So you have these sort of like issues that are happening uh, sort of at the... um, in you know, these are things that we've been promised um, for months now from people like David Leonhardt, especially, right, who have said like, oh, it's OK, we can get rid of masking because of these things being free, accessible and available readily for the vulnerable populations that are going to be at higher risk with when we have higher levels of infection. But now it's like, oh, well, you know, forget that even was, you know, <laughs> spoken. It's like we're pulling that funding off the table, too. And oh, yeah, by the way, we're also going to drop some of the surveillance that we're doing for new variants at the same yeah. time this is i mean if i if i like could make a broader point here it's like what is the problem here what is going on here politically that is that is producing this and i i have a sort of idea um i don't know what you guys think about this but it seems like the problem from the beginning so so when you read david leonhardt uh or you read or when you listen to jeff zines what you hear is a lang a kind of language of rationality that sounds like central planning we're going to be able to do a nimble, agile strategy that, like, you know, allows you to do everything you want to do uh, as the, like, liberal subject in the world. You know, you're going to have fun you have pizza parties and whatever else people do that is fun. I don't know what that anyway. Um, but at the same time, we're going to have all of these things in place. Uh, this, like, central this 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 master plan to. Uh, deal with all of these risks and then okay lo and behold they they can't get that done why right what why is that not possible well, one it's impossible because what they've set up is is an impossible like set of conditions right you can't do all of these things simultaneously and let like like hidden from that equation is just like okay but but, but at the same time we're just going to tolerate like a whole lot more deaths and and disease um but the other reason why they can't get that done is because in reality, none of none of the people in the administration really think like s- central planners. I mean, they, they, they're they're all about getting the win, getting the W, making the ARGs, as a friend of the show, Nathan <laughs> Dankus, has said. Right? right. And the way that you do that is like everything's on the table. There's nothing that's not on the table. And so what they did. And, and the whole problem spins back to the American Rescue Plan, which is the American Rescue Plan created, you know, a few hundred billion dollars of a fund for state and local governments, um, you know, and, and the way that it was framed, the way the Democrats framed it uh, was like, this is going to be relief, uh, relief money for the pandemic. In right. reality, it, it, state and local governments needed so much more than that, right? There's so many things that state and local government simply cannot do because uh, their revenue sources have been squeezed because of all kinds of like uh, tax, lim- you know, limitations that have that that states have imposed on on cities. Like just th- this morass of like fiscal policy. So what really Democrats should have probably said is like this is general money to support state and local governments, but instead they said this is specific money to provide relief for these aspects of the pandemic. Okay, and we're also going to allow them to spend it over four years. So lo and behold, it's a smart idea not to spend all of that money like immediately. Uh, If you have four years to spend it, you might want to save some in case something else really bad happens, which, by the way, it absolutely could. And so then Republicans come back and, and centrist, whatever, conservative Democrats like Joe Manchin, they're like, 
well, they're not spending the money. They don't really need this. Ergo, if you want the money for those new COVID, you know, protections in, in this in this new bill, we're going to have to claw it back right from this ARP money. And the thing is, because Democrats really don't they don't again, don't think about things from this like macro what are what the hell are we doing anyway perspective it's all about the little narrow constituencies that like win the day they're like shit we can't go back on governors and mayors that we already promised these things to so i guess we're not going to do the new thing right we're not like we we will accede because that's the way of getting the w that's the way of like you know winning the day that's that's how you uh essentially bargain and so like this it's not just like that the biden administration isn't taking the pandemic very seriously or that they've employed uh, Jeff Zients and a bunch of like management consultants to, to run the thing. Although I do think that that's a problem and I, I do want to get into the ideas that are shaping because it's all about justific- like justifying right. this stuff to people. And, and you can already hear in the way that reporters are talking to them. Um, but it's not just about that. It's the fact that this entire like mode of doing politics this this sort of interest group liberalism approach to politics. This is actually this is what it produces. Everything's on the table. Nothing really matters mm-hmm. um, except winning today. And, you know, maybe although I wouldn't even say so, like maybe doing something to like boost your approval and to improve the economy in the fourth quarter. Like that's I mean, that like do you see, like it, it's it's baffling to me why that's not super visible but like this is the kind of thing like i could give you any number of instances where this has happened during the pandemic it's like yeah we want to do these things uh what do you really want to do i don't know it's all kind of negotiable <laughs> right exactly and I, and I think this is exactly what we've sort of seen both in terms of where the sort of perspective and energy is coming from that you're sort of seeing these things being justified right like you can't have the Um, interest group approach to politics without the sort of justification machine on the other end, which like seeks to sort of somehow make sense of the fact that everything is on the table and that when it comes to doing sort of cost benefit analysis on things at the end of the day, like very little of what's ever being promised is ever going to actually make it out onto the table. Right. So, you you know, and I think the things like the OSHA regulations are the perfect example, right? The, the, The talking about the OSHA regulations as a possibility and a potentiality has taken up more time and gotten more mileage from the administration and from pundits also than the actual regulations themselves. And this is the kind of thing that we've been covering closely, but it's also, you know, it's sort of like in deep prioritizing certain things and in prioritizing certain perspectives like people who are making this sort of intellectual product to justify this stuff like the McKinsey consultants like David Leonhart you know this creates the kind of reflection and repetition needed to really make this justification feel hardy and legitimate right you know if you can sort of see no other alternative and there is no other intellectual work product other than all of this like you know repetitive just mindless drivel about, you know, reopening by quarter three and making sure that like quarter four comes in whole and projecting that, okay, well, if we can just keep like waves in the future to be less deadly than Omicron, then we're good to go with no medications going forward. You know, these kinds of like 
really just nonsensical contingencies that people are weighing as if they're sort of legitimate public health frameworks, right? Where, where what's really obvious and what's really been clear from the quote unquote science all along is that if we want to keep people safe right now, we have to keep everyone safe, right? There's no sort of half-assed way to manage COVID. If anything, we have repeatedly demonstrated that a half-assed approach to a pandemic response is just a total failure in the United States. I mean, there's one million official deaths. There are over 1,700 dead children, and many of those deaths happened in the last two months. So, you know, to be walking into a future where, you know, there are so many people who are really just laser focused almost on this like next election cycle, as if that's the only thing that really matters is being able to still sort of implement these strategies of like, okay, well, we had this plan going into the midterms that in Involved COVID being over. And instead of, you know, governing and making a plan to deal with what's in front of us, like we're just going to try and find a way to justify barreling forward with the same plan that we've had along all along, because the real priority here is that they like they weren't running to manage a state during a, a public health crisis. They were running to like come in and take back over the state that they wanted to manage, which is like ultimately sort of I think, coloring a lot of the decision making um, that's going forward right now. People do, I think, really believe that there can be some kind of return to normal that I think we have largely taken off of the table with our actions over the last two years. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I think, you know, we could talk about, for instance, like the ongoing, the, the current sort of iteration of the political malpractice that has been <laughs> ongoing right. for the last uh, two years. I do think that to sort of explain, though, I think one of the, some of the stuff that is happening here, I think Phil's correct in pointing to a bunch of uh, the sort of political problems that happen with this, this, specifically with this funding fight. But I think back of that is this broader ideological story, mm-hmm. which I think in some ways concerns actually the, you know, we've, we've mentioned we we're going to, you know, talk about what it sort of means essentially to produce the end of the pandemic. And I, I want to point to, I think, one of the things that people have really leaned on and I just want to kind of like focus for a second on what this actually means is this idea that like some of these actions, including like the actions by um, Congress to not pitch in more funding, even for, again, continuing to do what we have been doing. Even right? just for continuing the, to pay for vaccinations for the unvaccinated right. to make that continue to be free. They left that out. Right. Back of all of that, the sort of one of the justifications for that is essentially that we are what people will say is either at or approaching the point where COVID is endemic, Mm. right? That it is that there is the idea of endemicity. And I think that this is something that has become such a tortured term. It is not a new thing. We won't be the first people to point some of these things out. Like it is not a new thing for uh, people to be calling for or saying like, you know, because I I think actually, for instance, like for for a very long time, you know, getting COVID to endemic levels, quote unquote, was, I think, a big watchword of specifically like a lot of the COVID down players that Mm -hmm. we uh, have followed. And by this, I mean, like it was, you know, significantly more common maybe in 2021, for example, to see repeated over and over again that like the one true natural course of viral evolution was that like it could only get like really cuddly and like fade into the background or something like that. That right. was kind of like the mm-hmm. the, the thing. And that like COVID zero was like an impossible goal because like the sort of true nature right. of, of viruses well, is and is this sort of endemic living with it? State. Well, and also some of that stuff continues because now, you know, basically even I think among some people like 
were mentioned earlier, Matt Iglesias, for mm-hmm. example, like zero COVID is like a punchline practically for, mm-hmm. for him, for whatever constitutes a joke for that guy. But like one common benchmark for this was the idea of like, oh, you know, we'll get it down to levels of flu or something. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, a lot of that stuff has dropped away. Some people still say the like, we'll get it down to levels of flu. Some people, some people obviously still say like, oh, well, it'll, you know, become kind of an anodyne virus or something like that. But for the most part, a lot of those sort of, you know, again, stretched definitions of endemicity have faded away as it has become pretty clear that like given if, you know, significant amounts of our policy, not to mention our culture towards COVID basically does not change, then we will never get to anything like that. And it seems like they know this, like some people still say these things, but for the most part, they've like dropped that framework and what's replaced it. Right. When people say something is endemic now is to quote actually from uh, a document called The Next to Normal, um, which was the uh, the big production that was kind of much ballyhooed in the press, actually, of a bunch of former Biden advisors and, and others uh, kind of joining together, linking hands to say, like, this is what our you know proposal for the next phase of the pandemic is um, the, the sort of like, you know, extra steps that Biden should take on top of or beyond the actual document that ultimately was released in that document. They say, for example, quote, endemic. COVID does not mean without potential to cause disease and healthcare burden, a shift towards endemicity does signal a need to establish ongoing approaches to monitor and react appropriately to changes, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think, you know, in other words, a lot of the people who are saying we're selling endemicity really as a, as an endpoint where it would like suddenly become anodyne. Many of those are now much more open about what we've kind of have said from the very beginning, which is, you know, when this became a more common talking point not just among kind of covid cranks but among like i i don't know people like really affiliated with or kind of beholden to the biden administration for example you know we were pretty upfront at that time uh on our show saying what people mean when they say endemicity is deaths will continue and we will just kind of cope right? right we will kind of just deal with it and you know to that end another like quote to that extent management consulting firm McKinsey uh, from a report October 28th, 2021, quote, endemic disease did not mean unmanaged disease. Rather, what's needed is a shift from viewing COVID-19 as a one-time threat that defines society to seeing it as a part of everyday life that we must learn to endure, unquote. So it's, you know, I guess my, my point is these are all the sort of like public definitions of endemicity, right? There's this like idea that we'll get to some quote unquote an endemic state. And it's basically, it's become such tortured language because if you actually look at what endemicity means, it's so for example, here's like a couple of different actual definitions of endemicity. Here's one from Columbia University, quote, a disease outbreak is endemic when it is consistently present but limited to a particular region and the disease spread and rates are predictable. Here's the CDC, quote, the amount of a particular disease that is usually present in a community is referred to as the baseline or endemic level of disease. In the absence of intervention and assuming that the level is not high enough to deplete the pool of susceptible persons, the disease may continue to occur at this level indefinitely. (laughs) Endemic refers to the constant presence and or unusual prevalence of, again, this is still the CDC, endemic refers to the constant presence and or unusual prevalence of a disease or infectious agent in a population within a geographic area. 
hyperendemic refers to persistent high levels of disease occurrence. So already we can see basically we're not going anywhere near endemic unless maybe this hyperendemic term is actually like more more like it, but or unless really you you define your sort of geographical area as like the entire fucking world, right? Yeah. Like this mm-hmm. is not Yeah, I I think that for the sort of management consultant and 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 political class like the none of those definitions of endemic have ever really been satisfying exactly. right because mm-hmm. any of those definitions that that are sort of epidemiologically rooted still require a great deal of intervention and you know using the tools of government to deal with, you know, a, a persistent public health problem, right? I mean, it's, you, you don't get it, it, it to say something is endemic in those definitions doesn't mean that you get out of the game right. of, of actually having to use the power of the state to, to do things to protect public health, right? It, you don't get out of the responsibility of saying like, oh, what policies do we have in place that, uh, make it easier for people to stay home from work if they're sick. Like there's been epidemiological research for years that has suggested that, oh yeah, too many Americans go to work when they have the flu, which is why the flu is so bad every year uh, in the United States, especially in certain uh, communities where people have a much more difficult time staying home from work or else they, they fear losing their job, right? That is something that epidemiologists have been saying for years and the federal government Governments at other levels have just decided, you know what, that's not that important and we don't have to deal with that. Uh, so endemic here really means we can go back to whatever we were doing beforehand, by which I mean ignoring what epidemiologists were saying, like, hey, by the way, this is how you make the flu less bad. Right. <laughs> They're like, we would like to go back to that uh, right. baseline and, and actually perhaps even more aggressively saying, like, if you bring that up, you you are like hysterical and you are you like that's the whole that's the whole reason that's the whole way that you like know you're in a rationality project somebody's rationality project (laughs) is like yeah when you bring this up you're like you're a problem problem child here um yeah so like that to me everything that you said already like those are all good definitions of endemic that is not the one that is that is not the colloquial right. way that endemic is used. Yeah. And I'd like to point out that the sort of classical definition of pandemic is precisely that it sort of uh, encompasses more than one country. So you can't even sort of assert that, oh, well, we've, we've got this point where we're just hitting with um, we've got this stable level of, living with of in- it, you infection. Know? It just happens to be in most counties in the United States, Canada, and frankly, the world right at this point. You know, the the fact that we do have this large population of people who have become infected, the fact that, you know, there are all these people being infected every day, right, with COVID is being used almost as the reason to point to that and say, look at all these infections that now represents a stable number of infected individuals, that this is a stable number of infections and that this is sort of the density of infections that we should expect with COVID right. endemicity. And this is a really, really important nuance point because when this population of infected individuals becomes 
you know, agreed upon and there is sort of consensus that it is stable, that is usually when things technically sort of transition into the point where they're not considered to be a pandemic. They're not considered to be an emergency. It's considered to be, you know, a epidemic of disease or an endemic, you know, regionally locked phenomenon. Right. That's also you know, a socially constructed agreement, basically. Exactly. Right. And so what people are actually trying to assert right now is that it's not just that COVID is endemic when it isn't. It's that the current level of infection, the current level of spread that's going on in the community, Mm -hmm. not just in your community, but globally, that that constitutes a stable number of infected individuals that we should be anticipating to be infected on probably a seasonal basis, right? We're being reasonable, right? About our, our, um, uh, the people we're critiquing, but like, let's say they're expecting on a seasonal basis, you know, we're going to see maybe about 300,000 people die in the United States of COVID a year. Right. Right. Unacceptable. Right. You know, that, that's in a my co- opinion. Exactly. <laughs> right. That to me sounds like a pandemic, right? That's crossing many boundaries and borders. The United States is one of the largest um, countries in the world. It's, you know, if it were in between like, France and Spain, right? You'd be covering less area and you'd be crossing fewer boundaries than you do in the United States. So so part of this also is that they're trying to normalize the density and volume of infections, which I want to point out is in itself unprecedented in modern history. Trevor Bedford, who is a virologist, did this analysis in December when he was looking at the Omicron wave saying, wow, the density of infections here is wild. And he said that having around 40 percent of the population infected by a single pathogen in the span of eight weeks is, quote, remarkable. He says, like, uh, quote, I can't think of an obvious modern precedent. Flu seasons generally have perhaps 10 percent of the population infected in the span of 16 weeks. Right. Right. And this was him just looking at the beginning of Omicron. Right. So this is actually specifically when you hear this endemicity debate, right? It's that they're not, it's not just that they're trying to normalize that the pandemic is, you know, killing people. It's also that they're trying to normalize this density. Right. This unprecedented concentration of mm. having 40% of the population infected in the span of eight weeks, which is, you know, just astronomically higher than we ever see with the flu. So it's fine. You can compare infection fatality rates, but can you compare density? Fuck no. <laughs> right. And this is why it's, I think, so important to basically call bullshit on the colloquial you know, interpretation of what, quote unquote, endemicity has become, you know, as relates to COVID, especially, again, as wielded not only by your sort of, you know, armchair commentators like David Mm -hmm. Leonhardt, your immensely over rosy uh, experts like your Monica Gandhi's, but also now people in the ear of and certainly within the Biden administration, like the colloquial understanding of endemicity is, yeah, exactly what B is saying. It is not only, as we have said before, tolerating ongoing disease burden and, and, you know, death ability and disability from COVID-19, that like if we are not there yet, that we're almost there to the point where if we just, you know, eat a little bit lower on still mm-hmm. immensely high levels that we, you know, that we would like, again, be there, that we would be at that sort of socially acceptable level. And I would just like to point out, I I want to return, I think, in, in a bit to the some of the things that you said about flu, because, again, this kind of like this imagination of like when, when you get things down to flu levels has 
you know, I, I mentioned that it kind of disappeared a little bit, but it's still, I think, a, a pretty pervasive I- idea and one that's really untenable. Yeah. And I want to say that, for example, in the the document that I cited before, where, um, you know, in the this October 2021 document from McKinsey, they say that, you know, it's it's simply the level that we must, quote unquote, learn to endure. Mm-hmm. Right. They continue on to say around 38,000 Americans die every year in road traffic accidents, <laughs> far fewer than from COVID-19 over the past year, but still a significant number. As a society, we have developed tools to make road travel safer, seat belts, airbags, impaired driving laws, and so on. Each road death is a tragedy, and car makers, public safety agencies, and many others continually strive to reduce fatalities. But most of us don't spend much time thinking about road safety. We get in the car, buckle up, and go. Soon the daily risks we run with COVID-19 may seem as much a part of normal daily life as the risks we run when we put the car in drive (laughs) and navigate flu season each winter, unquote. And I would like to point out that this is part of of the game. I was gonna say, <laughs> I like, don't. No, no, wait, wait, wait. This, so there's the, right, but the, the, here's the, there's a trick basically. Like, okay, that's fucked up, right? That's fucked up in, on its on its face. <laughs> yeah, that state, yeah, that whole yeah. statement is fucked up. Beyond that, there is a fucking trick in this, which is they say we have developed these tools to mitigate road deaths, like seat belts and all of these things. And meanwhile, what they are talking about is. A imagining a post masking post any other non pharmaceutical intervention world, which by necessity is not going, but basically well, saying it's one like, where the government has no hand in any of that. You the, know. What I'm saying is this sort of metaphor, obviously, you know, once again, the car accident metaphor is one that has a storied history and, you know, COVID denier and COVID downplayer bullshit that we've you know, talked about at great length. Uh, but like, this metaphor only works if you say, and also, by the way, we have, you know, socially decided that we no longer are doing things like seatbelts or like safety <laughs> testing for automobiles or traffic lights or whatever. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, that, that, that's right. I mean, it's like I, I basically I don't believe anyone using the uh, traffic safety metaphor in the United States where our infrastructure is crumbling and we've like for years steadfastly resisted doing anything about that. And where, yeah, of course, you know, there's all of these unseen uh, regulations that actually are, that that did have a massive, massive role in reducing the auto fatality rate between the 1970s and today. Like again, both of those things, it's just, it's uh, you know, the, the level of like the assumption of how dumb people are is like very like callous here. Yeah. Maybe this is a good time to get into some of these other novel definitions of endemicity because there's the colloquial one as yeah. we talked about. Yeah, give and us then the new kind flavors. The there's some new flavors edge. here. Right. Yeah, there's the bleeding edge of like uh definitions of endemicity yeah so let's return to the march 1st 2022 edition of the mckinsey and company when will the COVID 19 pandemic end report this report has been released by mckinsey several times throughout the pandemic it was just recently updated at the beginning of march 
And this most recent update, they expand their endemicity framework and I think put together the most horrific graphic I think I've seen uh, in a McKinsey report so far. And that is saying something. My least favorite. (laughs) This is something that I think uh, I just want to put out there as kind of like a watch this space sort of thing. Like watch for this because this is... The framework that they suggest here is not something that I think is really uh, I have I haven't seen it like repeated in in other situations. I think they're, you know, they're off kind of an uncharted territory here. But I do think that, you know, expect to see this if we're talking about, for example, what will the sort of non ending of the pandemic look like? I think look <laughs> no further than this, which yeah. is they pose three new definitions of endemicity. Or rather, I guess, two new definitions of endemicity in addition to sort of the the original. So they have this kind of uh, tiered linear progression of these three different types of endemicity. One is the one in the sort of the middle is what is the original. They refer to this as the epidemiological uh, definition of endemicity which is, they say, epidemiological endemicity, quote, epidemiologically, COVID-19 can be defined as endemic when it exists at a predictable level that does not require society-defining interventions. You know, would like to point out again, calling something, quote-unquote, society-defining interventions is pretty ideologically loaded language. But And um, also very far from the actual textual definition of endemicity, as we pointed out. Right. Also... We're not anywhere near there. Yeah. Um, but then they have these other two. One <laughs> is individual endemicity, uh, which is if you want something it. else. And the, uh, <laughs> the third God. level in this tiered <laughs> chart is economic <laughs> endemicity. So <laughs> I want to explain I, how these work. But you sent ahead. this. Sorry. You, like, just the background here. Backstory. Like Artie sent me this image. Uh with no no <laughs> explanatory text and i was like you want me to implode you want me to implode like people do in the movie time cop where they just turn into cello <laughs> yeah. thank you thank you for this this is my perfect uh, my uh, personal scanners moment um so i this isn't necessarily made clear in the document but i watched the one media appearance that one of the co-authors has done on this and they set it up explicitly as this is a they view this as a linear progression so first (laughs) we come to accept individual endemicity Uh right then we get to epidemiological endemicity which they imagine as you know the point where actually we are uh at yeah (laughs) again Levels of the virus being, quote unquote, endemic, whatever that means. Which they define as not requiring, quote, society defining interventions. Right. And (laughs) then we get to economic endemicity. So there's a lot to unpack here. And I I think I'll just go through this really, really briefly as sort of an overview. (laughs) Yeah. Mm. I mean, this is a really... Pure innovation. I think without even necessarily pausing to think i think clearly certainly they without pausing to think about how extremely fucked and blatantly how how this is like uncut pure ideology basically i think they have done a profound conceptual innovation here because actually i think that this trajectory presents exactly so much of the problem with the colloquial understanding of 
endemicity as a yeah, framework exactly. and oh, the end of the sure. pandemic because you have here's the progression one individual endemicity quote a behavioral threshold for endemicity <laughs> A behavioral threshold for endemicity, the authors write, would come when fluctuations in disease burden cause only minimal change in individual <laughs> economic and social behavior. Uh, okay, so already, so this, already, we've 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 defined this epidemiological concept even before we've gotten to the term economic endemicity. We've defined this epidemiological concept purely in terms of economic activity. I just want to. And we've and we have acknowledged that it's social? a social it's a social construction and that it is socially uh, it becomes agreed upon through a political process, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, they continue. This is uh, this minimal change is mediated by individual risk factors in parentheses, <laughs> age, underlying conditions and so on. Close parentheses. And so on. And their <laughs> risk appetite. Ah. Well, how is your risk appetite? If you are a hungry, hungry hippo for <laughs> risk. <laughs> um, uh, again, so that's that's the first one. I'm on a individual. risk appetite suppressant. Oh, my God. So that's the first one. Individual endemicity. Again, the second one, epidemiological endemicity. Uh, they say, as defined above, quote, epidemiologically, COVID-19 can be defined as endemic when it exists as a predictable at a predictable level that does not require society defining interventions. Unquote. <laughs> now, third step. Mm. Economic endemicity. The authors write, quote, finally, an economic threshold for endemic COVID-19 will come when epidemiology substantially decouples from economic activity (laughs) and secondary economic effects largely resolve. This economic definition is related to the individual behavior definition, but may take longer to reach because those secondary effects, including supply chain imbalances, labor market disruptions and global asymmetries affecting travel and trade may linger. You know, I'm so proud of uh, the economy for breaking up with epidemiology and, you know, striking out on her own to be her own person and decoupling herself from epidemiology it was really dragging her yeah. down i mean <laughs> she really fair, i don't such think a that she's with I, say, I don't think she's decided to do that yet i think she's like <laughs> left she's left for a couple days and then she, well, she came back. back you know remember this well, is the third be. stage it doesn't but here's the but here's the acknowledgement right think about this trajectory it's incredible it's actually it's incredible thank you mckenzie for fucking Congrats saying it out team. loud yeah seriously so think about this again the first tier is essentially saying we can socially, you know, we can get to the point socially where people accept risk that is unrelated to the actual material threats in their lives. That is them deciding or being forced to decide mm-hmm. to take it on their personal responsibility yeah. to do whatever they want to do on the pandemic and fuck everybody else. The second tier is the sort of what we've been talking about, the imaginary, you know, basically it's either um, like it's either flu like levels or it's like uh, even the McKinsey document itself. um, They used to the this is a document they've updated many times over the the course of the last couple of years. 
they do not any longer refer to it as like getting down to flu-like levels. So already their their pinpoint for whatever quote unquote epidemiological endemicity would be, aka just like always living with COVID, is already presumably higher than that. The third level, which again is I think pure ideology, because I don't know how you exist with like a high disease burden as you're suggesting in number two and get to number three, but okay. The third level, which they say is basically like in the this linear progression, the most difficult to get to, is where it no longer affects the supply chain <laughs> and things like that. Where essentially yeah. economic, quote unquote, economic endemicity means that basically the current means that basically current economic and class structures can just keep on going like exploiting uh it's the exploiting workers tier. without basically without basically like the conditions of work itself being a bigger disease factor thus like uh impacting the ability of those underpaid people to do that work do you know what i mean it's like they're basically right. saying like at what point is it the case that after we've sort of harmonized like normalized all of this <laughs> disease and death that Things are just accounted for in the supply chain, and we no longer necessarily have disruptions due to this ongoing burden of death, illness, and disability that we've like just accepted. Right. right? I right. mean, am I reading this wrong at no, all? No, I, like, I don't think so. I, I think it's very clear that this is really um, a priority for a lot of people, too. I mean, in so many conversations where people tell me that. <laughs> like it's unreasonable to expect the entire world to be masking forever to protect some small percentage of immunocompromised people who are always already in danger anyways. It's like, yeah, that's absolutely like what their priority really is too. like. Yeah. And just I, in a general vibe. And I think the other thing is, you know, I was reading a couple of the I'm, I'm always curious about the social world in which these things um, mm-hmm. emerge because it's. You have to, I think, understand that the culture of the team that produced this is, is they do not perceive themselves to be kind of but like political hacks who are working for like they, they couldn't produce this kind of document if they thought of themselves that way. This is not something that's private. It's public. Um, they want right. everybody to see that, you know, ostensibly you know, this is there for the world to see. Like they think of themselves as as being incredibly um, savvy and, and thoughtful. And, and I think the thing that's really kind of fascinating to me is that, so that they are paid to be the, the kind of pie in the sky, like visionary type people and, and put these things out. And so you, like you look through other things that this team is like producing. It's like, they're also like, okay, we need to make all of these changes to the public policy to, you know, to prepare ourselves for future pandemics. Now, Keep in mind that those changes that they're suggesting are not like to me, you know, they're they're many of them are valuable. I wouldn't like disagree with uh, just about any of them. I think they're they're, you know, uh, like, yeah, our surveillance systems are crappy. Um, we, you know, don't have like we have all kinds of sort of capacity issues um, in in hospital systems, especially in, in rural areas. Like it's it's all a bunch of like fairly anodyne stuff. But like. There's nothing in there that a recognizes that like the political appetite for this kind of stuff is is just completely governed by like fiscal hawkery. 
and and B, there's nothing in there that to me is like a kind of thing that that would be recognizable and tangible in people's lives um, that would enable them to deal with the conditions of pandemic. Again, there's no, like, nothing in there. You're not going to hear these people talking about things like like, you know, expanding workers protections to stay home from work if they're right. sick or like paid sick leave or right. anything like that. And so like this is the thing that I think is like fascinating uh, to me about like the where things are with the Biden administration and Democrats, which is I think there's this perception that if you don't somehow declare victory, you don't somehow say like, yes, we can all take our masks off now. And like, yeah, will there be consequences? Sure. But like on balance, the political and sort of cultural risks to them, to their party, to their political project are lower if they, you know, uh, announce an end of these things. It at the same time completely ignores all of these things that are massively popular interventions like paid sick leave, a massively popular like intervention, like improving people's ability to just like get health care without having to pay for it at the clinic. Right. Which, you know, again, I, I called my doctor's office like today. They're like, and and if you have outstanding payments, be sure to have them ready by the time you get like, OK, well, that would oh, be yeah. for a lot of people like yeah. a reason not to go if I even if I had scheduled an appointment. Um, yep, so, same. you know, like there are all of these things that to me are kind of like politically low hanging fruit. But when you have these sort of consultants kind of informing things, they're being asked to think in this way that's like visionary. What they're going to come up with is a whatever they think the necessary justificatory logics will be for where we were already going to go anywhere. So there's no like this is the thing it's the illusion of influence. Like they right. think they're being influential, but what they're really doing is reflecting the mm-hmm. things that their clients want to see. So that's not really influence. That's, I guess, notoriety. Um, or, you know, access, uh, but it's not actually influence because they're going to, they were going to do those things anyway. They just needed you to write the language. And the second thing is <laughs> any of the policy changes they recommend, they're not going to be things that jibe with what a party would need to do to retain office to like build a durable political constituency. So like this is this to me is like why the Democratic Party is like in a death spiral and why it continues to perceive ruining people's lives as (laughs) acceptable public policy or even advisable public policy or the best that we can do or the the way that we're going to like keep the wolf from the door. I mean, that's because I do think that that is what Democrats tell themselves. They're like, if we don't do this stuff, if we don't say that there is such a thing as economic intimacy, my God, just like listen to what you are saying, you know, but I think that they, you know, you can justify, you can get yourself to believe just about anything. When you tell yourself like, well, we need to do this to keep the wolf from the door. Well, there are tons of other things you could be doing that would actually make a hugely meaningful difference in people's lives in terms of preventing them from being able, you know, preventing them not only from the risk of COVID, but from any number of other like health risks they would experience um, that they go to work anyway, then spread disease to other people while they're sick. I mean, this is just, uh, you know, when you have a party that is so completely disconnected from its mass base and when there are no organizations to link them to that base and you have a party that is run by and for and through this melange of of elites. Right. And, 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 it, and it's also, and you're in a death spiral. You're going to lose. You will lose anyway. 
right? Like the wolf will come in the door, will tie a bib on itself, and then will, you know, take out the, you know, utensils or whatever if a, if a wolf uses utensils and begin to feast on you. I mean, frankly, I think, you know, it's it's kind of sad when even McKenzie acknowledges that like, well, you can't even achieve economic endemicity unless you make sure that you're able to limit disease through effective therapeutics and through vaccines and other countermeasures. You know, it's like even like McKinsey is being realistic here that, yeah, you can you can like move towards endemicity and you can try and get there by the third quarter of this year. But like there are, you know, certain Things that need to be in place, right? Like the seatbelt stuff, like traffic lights, like airbags, like all that other fucking bullshit that people like to point to. These are the kinds of things that need to be in place on the other side of the table, right? If you're looking at COVID, right? You want to live with COVID? Like you need to have things in place. That's what an endemic disease means. Malaria is endemic. People put up mosquito nets, right? Like these are the kinds of ways that endemic diseases change society. If you want it to be endemic, you're going to have to see some changes in society. I'm sorry. It's just going to work that way. And, you know, you can't have it both ways. Yeah, no. And and, and I think that that's, that's the thing that, again, I, I keep coming back to the social world that produces these sorts of documents. Like, I, you, you read this thing carefully and there's a bunch of different like caveats and it's like, assuming this is true, right. then we could do that. Right. Assuming that there's no new variants. Okay. Then the following yeah, things, then the following things obtain. Right. Okay. Well, that's true as far as it goes. Right. And so again, I, I think that like the social world of a team that produced something like this is like, yes, we've been very careful. We've identified the caveats. It's like your client does not care about the caveats. Your client cares only about the rosiest possible scenario that would allow them to do the least, you know, the least sort of disruptive <laughs> things to expend the yeah. least amount of political effort. And, right. you know, say we tried hard anyway, you know, like that's, I think that's the thing is I, I, I wish I like to, to, to be able to talk to these people. It's like, you don't know. You, you think you're really smart. You have no idea if you really do believe those caveats, how easy it is to play you right or how, how easy it's like and they, they've really convinced themselves that they can't be played right or that it doesn't matter right. right well and i think this is why looking ahead to what we can maybe expect of this end or non-end of the pandemic is important i mean i don't know to what degree you know i, I don't mean to say like that we should get into prognostication or anything mm-hmm. but i do think uh, i mean maybe you guys have some things to this effect but i have i think two things that i'd like to say f- specifically actually about what this kind of overall sentiment and framework uh, and attitude achieves and for example based on what we've seen the track record that we've uh, seen things go apace like it, you know it's important to point out that as recently as for instance like january uh early january of this year we did a whole episode about how for months a bunch of these like covid down players basically were pushing for things like uh make the make the cdc's metrics or make our understanding of the pandemic be based mostly on hospitalizations things that have recently come to right, pass right the fact for instance that also in in the same episode that i'm referencing which is uh vaxton collapse we we talked about another line which was trying to further downplay the already undercounted amount of COVID deaths by, you know, reclassifying uh, deaths as being 
with COVID, like having died or been hospitalized with COVID versus for COVID. And now you see this is one of actually, this has become one of Anthony Fauci's main talking points. So just recently, for example, on, uh, I think this was CNN, he said, uh, Fauci said, quote, so are the numbers of hospitalizations a real reflection of COVID cases? Or is there a difficulty deciphering between people coming into the hospital with COVID or because of COVID? And this was him trying to downplay the increasing calls that like we should probably be paying attention to how in Europe and Asia there's like rising cases of BA2 and there's a lot of rising cases in general and that likely we're to see that uh, in the US as well, especially because we just dropped a ton of our Mm -hmm. uh, mitigations. Um, Also saying of children recently, both in a White House press briefing and on MSNBC, uh, on MSNBC, he said, for instance, that many children are, quote, hospitalized with COVID as opposed to because of COVID. And the real reason for their hospitalization may be, quote, a broken leg or appendicitis or something like that. Now, we ha- there's a track record of these people of these things just sort of like coming to pass. Right. And so mm-hmm. this gives me, I think, a, in particular, a lot of pause when you see things like, for example, Monica Gandhi, who was one of those people who was mm-hmm. pushing for the focus on hospitalizations instead of cases and stuff like that, saying things uh, like as she did on a New York Times podcast this past week that, quote, what creates the fear is going to the New York Times website and looking at the number of cases. And at some point, that's just got to go. We want to not (laughs) keep on infusing fear into the population once we have the tools of how to manage COVID. Also saying, uh, quote, so I think it's important to stop reporting cases out to the public, mm. unquote. Great idea, Monica. Right. So, I mean, my, it's like, it's interesting. Does she mean uh, the Times should stop? The CDC should stop? I mean, this is like... I think it's intentionally vague, but she's speaking general. on the to- on a time, like in a prominent Times platform, you know. So, yeah. I mean, she is speaking directly of like the New York Times and it's like, but I mean, these are things, and we've warned about this before, like you know, this is a fucking, it's very clear that the, all the Biden administration really cares about right now is like the midterm elections. You you can imagine how much that they would love, for example, for the New York Times to drop its tracker, mm-hmm. right? You would imagine how at any opportunity they could to make it so that people are less, even less emphasized than they already were on the amount of ongoing deaths. Cause a lot of people don't even necessarily like pay attention to that. Right. And some newsrooms that were running trackers of their own have already stopped. Right. Them. Yeah. Exactly. Just recently. The second thing mm-hmm. that I just, again, want to sort of point to for what the putative end of COVID looks like is something that I just genuinely do not think a lot of people have considered, especially those people who have uh, been pushing this idea that we're near endemicity or pushing this idea that we could consider COVID-19 to be endemic when it gets down to like the level of the flu. What I want to point out is that like here, here to me is the essential problem with not only the flu framing, but the whole idea that we even have any idea yet not only that we can accept the current amount of you know death and disease burden from COVID nineteen, but the idea that we even kind of fucking comprehend it on a so on a society level, because as we've referenced before, friend of the show at WSBGNL has been studiously collecting reported breakthrough cases, and even with some states not reporting or other states having incomplete or outdated data, there have been fifty five thousand eight hundred and twenty eight breakthrough deaths to date. 
I want to note the last time I mentioned the statistic on the show, that figure was only at 50,000. So that has quickly increased. Here's the thing. And here's why I point this out. When did people start getting vaccinated? Right. Early 2021. Right. So this number, 55,828, again, undercount as it clearly is, because also one of the states that does not report this information is Florida. (laughs) That number has to be contextualized knowing that breakthrough deaths definitionally did not like just definitionally did not occur pre-vaccine obviously because you can't have a breakthrough death without yeah it basically starts in the delta wave right so let's say okay like the first few months of vaccine rollout as we talked about on the show were pretty dicey so let's say roughly you know over the course of one year now between roughly you know january 2021 to now you know march 2022 Roughly in the span of a year, let's say 45,000, 55,000 breakthrough deaths, right? And that's with 2021 level NPIs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So while it is absolutely true, obviously, that vaccines are reducing the amount of cases that lead to death mm-hmm. and that the best sort of, you know, individual level choice that you can make is to get vaccinated. Health is still a collective thing. Absolutely. And... I think what this shows us is that if if we were, you know, just relying on vaccines or if we basically like dropped everything else and we were saying this is what we accept, that figure 45 to 55,000 breakthrough deaths is already that's like higher than what is registered as a bad flu year. Mm-hmm. Right. If that's if this is the level of death that we're like talking about normalizing, essentially, right. then we are talking, you know, really, if if still even. Uh, among the vaccinated, you know, 45, 55,000 people will die in a year, then that in itself, just the breakthrough deaths yeah. is a bad, it qual- constitutes a bad, quote unquote, bad flu year, right? Because right? Right. 30 to 50,000 people die of flu every year in the US. Sometimes it's higher. In 2018, it was like 80,000 people died of the flu. Like the fact that this is really excessively downplayed i think in the name of i think understandably being worried about saying that like it's it suggests that like vaccine efficacy isn't high enough to make it worth it or something like i'm not saying that like i what i will say is that vaccine efficacy will be higher if you layer npis absolutely on top of things so it's like imagining a world where again with 2021 level npis like 55,000 breakthrough deaths happened in about in you know just over a year I just don't, I think I can't imagine, it just doesn't re, it doesn't seem to me like anyone has really thought through the ramifications of that because then if, again, those are just the breakthrough deaths because you, you could say like, oh, that's, you, I could see someone saying like, oh, that's not too many because like haven't like a million people died of COVID and that's only 50,000. But again, you know, it's only just in this year. Yeah. That's um, a lot. And a lot that's more not, than the and that's like, that, that's sort of, I'm saying that's like, I'll imagine that even as a baseline. That's right. just not, that's, that is, not only Especially not acceptable, it's not that's anywhere near, too. and it's not anywhere near what people have been selling it as. Right. And, so, and right. especially when we know where breakthrough deaths are concentrated. This is anecdotal, but um, I know five people who have passed away from COVID breakthrough infections in the last 30 days. Yeah. It's a lot. That's a that's a lot of deaths, even for the amount of people that I know that are chronically or terminally ill who are my friends. You know, that is a lot of people in a month. And the fact of the matter is, is that public health measures don't just stop the spread of COVID. I mean, people keep being like, well, we never did any of these protections for the medically vulnerable before. Like, 
we don't really give people HIV, AIDS drugs. Like, why should we give them COVID vaccines, right? Yes. Why should we do anything? Why right. bother? <laughs> but then there was a study that came out like this last month in The Lancet where they were showing that during 2020, there were 720,000 fewer cases of dengue virus, which is called breakbone fever. It's a virus that primarily circulates in Latin America and Southeast Asia. But just from the COVID mitigations that we had in place in 2020, we were able to reduce, you know, three, almost three quarters of a million infections of a different virus, just protecting people against COVID, right? The possibilities for public health that we were working with before the pandemic are not in any way an acceptable baseline to return to. And the fact of the matter is, is that very few people tend to sort of understand that. And it's incredibly frustrating because there are things like this Lancet study, right? Which where you're like, wow, the possibilities, right? The possibilities of actually thinking expansively about public health, they're just tremendous, right? If we stop thinking about, you know, getting pharmaceuticals to the world the way that Bill Gates does, where we're just, you know, doing everything through the sort of World Trade Organization and like the U.S. even as part of this White House announcement that we've been talking about, they said, oh, well, we're going to have to definitely commit fewer vaccines to COVAX now, too. Like we're going to donate less vaccines because we won't have the COVID funding. So it's like, you know, this whole sort of austerity approach to to public health, which was the baseline before it was an absolute abhorrent fucking disaster that made people's lives sicker and shorter than they had to be. Right. And the fact of the matter is, is that it's hard, I think, as a vulnerable person to be thinking about the coming months because it just fills you with such doom and dread. Everything's just going to get so much harder if this level of community spread is normalized. I mean, under the new CDC guidelines, if let's say all of the counties in the United States were like pushing the edge between low and medium cases. Right. Um, Let's say we were having like counties all sort of coming up to the point of being like around 150, 199 cases per 100,000 people for a seven-day rolling average, which is the new threshold between low and medium, you know, that's 95,000 cases a day, right? That's the level of spread that we were having, you know, in, in the sort of lead up to what ended up being this horrific wave that came through the the holidays, right? These are the kinds of numbers where we're, we're looking at levels of death that are immense, right? And this is the kind of spread that is being normalized as low, right? That's being, you know, posited by the CDC as a a risk level framework where the majority of people should feel comfortable unmasking. And that just makes the world so much smaller for people like me and so much more dangerous. And I know a lot of people are filled with a lot of doom right now about that because, you know, with what we're seeing with BA2, you know, people are playing Omicron down as having been mild and they're saying BA2 is going to be more mild. But the fact of the matter is, is that BA2, this isn't like a new variant. It's an evolutionary branch of Omicron as as per how it's been classified. So, you know, like Omicron killed like 150,000 people in a matter of weeks in the United States, like hundreds of the people that died were children. Um, You know, I I don't think that the idea of sort of waiting to see what BA2 does 
um, before we act, which is really basically our current plan, right? Let's wait till the hospitals are full until we start masking again. You know, that is a level of death that I don't find acceptable as like a, a moral human being, but as like a immunocompromised person, it fucking terrifies me. You know, it, it makes my world so much more dangerous than it's actually ever been throughout the entire pandemic now. And it's, you know, I think for a lot of people just exhausting, right? Because this is the moment to beef stuff up. This is the moment to like expand wastewater testing, to actually like invest in the few leading indicators that we have, which is testing and wastewater surveillance, which are going out the fucking window right now with all the other COVID funding. And it's really fucking tragic. But I don't know. I don't know how, but I'm not hopeless. I'm just fucking furious. I mean, I think it it is hard for me to believe that, you know, the Biden administration, you know, changes course unless they're, you know, forced to like the thing is that there are some things that are easy to easy ish to hide. There are other things that once they start happening, once hospitals start filling up again, it's going to be I mean, look, it's not like people are going to try. Right. But I think it's somewhat harder to uh, to hide. I mean, I think the the question is whether or not that really registers Mm -hmm. Um, as something, I mean, essentially what, what happens when you kind of move into this new like framework is when bad things happen that they become, you, you start treating them as aberrations, right? Right. I don't think that if we're, we start to see when we start to see, you know, what's happening here following from what's happening in Europe, like I don't necessarily, you know, think it's, it's going to be possible to, I mean, it's just. Nobody with any sort of credibility is going to be able to treat it as an aberration. But I think the the, the sort of question is like, what, what's the what's the Biden administration's like who, to whom are they responsive? It seems like there's a respectability politics that they're sort of responsive to when Jen Psaki kind of made that flippant comment about uh, you don't think we're going to send test everybody to you. Like then they had to like, you know, they had to eat it on that and, uh, you know, and, and had to had to do something to respond. Right. I don't I kind of get the sense that the the media like the sort of respectable media class is like the the main institution they're responsive to. And like that's I think what fills me with a little bit more despair is like I I don't see that class of people really being so enthusiastic about any kind of public. I see them actually as being <laughs> right. being a uh, break well, on any of this. I mean, I think this is the problem with saying, you know, for example, I think you, you could say uh when you know, cases go back up or whatever it could, that it would be hard for anyone to, with a straight face, treat it as an aberration. But I think that's very much what the, you know, pandemic of the unvaccinated line was and is sort of a prelude to even further sort of distancing of like, you know, already basically so many, uh, so much of COVID death is distanced in like, frankly, a lot of people, even in the public's minds as Mm -hmm. a factor of, you know, only being among the unvaccinated uh, to the point that, you know, uh, to like to the point that there are all the, you know, people or whatever who make fucking jokes about um, how like, oh, well, actually, if we don't do anything about the pandemic, then a bunch of Republicans will die because they're the only they're, they're the only anti-vaxxers <laughs> or whatever. And only anti-vaxxers die. Therefore, like, you know, uh, like Democrats will win in November or some shit like just grotesque um bullshit that also happens again to not be true but also like even the i think you see it it 
I'm worried also even that, for instance, the way that the administration talks about like the immunocompromised, for example, uh, yeah. now and the way that they've started that they've like pivoted a lot of their language about the immunocompromised specifically since those meetings um, following the Rochelle Walensky comments about how like oh, it was encouraging that only, you know, people with four comorbidities or more uh, were dying of breakthrough infections or, or whatever, that that was like great news. Um, you know, after there was a backlash to that, they started having these uh, these meetings with people. Their their language about the immunocompromised changed a lot, but I think the way that they changed the language also emphasized this thing that you're you know talking about, Phil, which is the this like idea of it being an aberration. Not only that, like right, immunocompromised people are then themselves like an aberration to begin with, as we've talked about plenty on the show. That as though they are atomized from society in some way as though they're not part of society as though they're not workers as though they're not like living with people who are not immunocompromised or whatever like i think all of this just continually becomes another way to sort of pass the buck and it's so normalized to this point that you know as we've been throwing around in the group chat for like the last 24 hours like you know when like reporters ask questions about the lack of continued funding for covid stuff literally they'll say like well why does the federal government have to do this why don't, right. why don't insurers or hospital groups just start yeah, buying the therapeutics work. and vaccines? Yeah, because everyone loves their hey, fucking let's go insurance to, let's company. Go to, let's go to Zeke Miller from the AP. Because we have a healthcare get... system, not a cartel yeah. of fucking mafia shit. I have an like, idea. What if we kick a lot of people off of Medicaid and then we make COVID vaccines only available to the privately insured? Yeah, it's just... but And this is... What I'm saying is I guess that's why I bring up the Monica Gandhi stuff because we could comfortably try to say like oh well no no one in their fucking right mind would be able to you know just sort of like grin in the face of you know a huge uh rise in deaths that are you know continuing to be above a thousand a day but like if you know if they go back up to like two three thousand again you know that no one would be able to sort of ignore that but i think that that's part of the you know again that's why i highlight so much is at stake in this idea of this Mm -hmm. end of the pandemic in this idea of this like colloquial you know bullshit homespun uh not even homespun but like you know david leonhart and others spun idea of what endemicity means and then these like new sort of media definitions of endemicity or whatever so much is at stake in that because it's the process that so many things even this mckinsey document or whatever talks about as this social level of acceptance of death mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that's not simply that is not actually although they you know go through this like trajectory in that document and they say like oh it starts at the individual and then it goes to the social or whatever it doesn't necessarily work like that <laughs> all the time <laughs> it is also something that is enforced and that is that can be not to be uh I don't I don't believe in like Cass Sunstein style fucking nudge nudge behavioralism. But I do think that, you know, if you remove if you literally remove the tools for people to be able to see that their fucking personal suffering is part of a collective right atrocity, then what are you know, what are people supposed to do? Yeah. What the fuck do you expect? Sorry, not to get too dark. But I guess no. we should wrap up yeah. soon. I don't think it's too dark. I think it's true and I think it's a good place to actually end the episode. Uh, listeners, if you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. You get access to all of our past bonus episodes and our bonus episodes on Monday. 
Death Panel is a fully independent project run just by the three of us. It's just Phil, Artie, and I. We do everything ourselves, and we are entirely listener-supported. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, and request it at your local library, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. Patrons, we will see you on Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we will see you later in the week. As always... Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. With endemic management of other viruses, what happens is that the health departments track cases, but the public doesn't click on a link and know the number of cases in the United States. Also, by the way, people are doing home testing and it's not even, those aren't reflected in those numbers. So those are underestimating the cases. So I think it's important to stop reporting cases out to the public. People can know them if they want, but 